The Hamlet Podcast, episode 157. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hanrity. Well then, we finally made it to the most famous image of the play. If you ask anyone to imagine Hamlet in their mind's eye, it's more than likely that they'll picture him holding a skull. Perhaps holding a skull and reciting to be or not to be. This image is the essential snapshot of Hamlet, the most easily recognisable, even clichéd idea of this character's experience. But for all of it being so recognisable, I'm trying to avoid the word iconic that has become all but meaningless these days, it's quite a shocking image too. Think about it. Would you pick up a skull? Would you pick up a skull if you were told that it was the skull of someone that you actually knew? It's a grim encounter with mortality. Throughout the play, Hamlet has been wrestling with death, with the murder of his father and the frustrated anguish he feels in its aftermath. And now, brilliantly, Shakespeare has him come literally face to face with death. It's the image of Hamlet and the skull that is unforgettable. The words he speaks cannot compete. Indeed, the line that he speaks when he picks up the skull is one of the most misquoted in all of Shakespeare. Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio, a fellow of infinite jest, of most excellent fancy. He hath borne me on his back a thousand times, and now, how abhorred in my imagination it is, my gorge rises at it. Here hung those lips that I have kissed I know not how oft. Where be your jibes now? Your gambols, your songs, your flashes of merriment that were wont to set the table on a roar. Not one now to mock your own grinning, quite chap-fallen. Now get you to my lady's chamber and tell her, let her paint an inch thick. To this favour she must come. Make her laugh at that. We already know that this skull belonged to Yorick, the king's jester. We know he's been dead for about 23 years. What we don't know is that Hamlet himself knew Yorick. It's understandable, of course, both would have spent time in the old king's company, and if Hamlet is now 30, as discussed, then he would have been seven years old when Yorick passed away. So then, of course, Hamlet remembers Yorick. He knew him. I've read that the reason so many people have this line in their heads as Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him well, is that in some productions Horatio is cut and that Hamlet therefore wouldn't say his name. Whether or not it's true, I find this a little bit troubling, since Horatio is increasingly important as the play continues. Cutting him, to me at least, makes no sense. Don't even think of ever doing so. From Hamlet, we get a sense of what Yorick was like a fellow of infinite jest, of most excellent fancy. One imagines he was very entertaining, even if he did once pour that flagon of wine over the gravedigger. He seems to have had a special relationship with the little prince Hamlet, bearing him on his back a thousand times. In a good few plays we see mention of how clowns and jesters were popular with a previous regime. In Twelfth Night, the clown Feste was beloved of Olivia's dead father, and likewise in All's Well That Ends Well, the clown Lavache is indulged because he made the dead Count of Roussillon laugh. 
These two clowns at least get to appear in their respective plays, unlike poor Yorick, who is only a skull. Hamlet isn't sure if it's a pleasant memory or not. No sooner has he mentioned these happier, earlier times than he points out that now it's deeply disturbing to him. Now how abhorred in my imagination it is, my gorge rises at it. His imagination is spinning with horror at the implications of this skull and this decay, and he's physically sick to his stomach. Nonetheless, he can't look away, and instead his imagination is reconstructing how the features of Yorick's face used to be. Here hung those lips that I have kissed I know not how oft. A skull is recognisable for the lack of skin or any tissue, anything but bone and teeth. Naturally, the lips that might cover the teeth are gone, and are the first thing Hamlet thinks about. He moves on from the physical as he remembers what Yorick used to do. Where be your jibes now, your gambles, your songs, your flashes of merriment that were wont to set the table on a roar? Everything is gone. Yorick's jibes, his mocking jokes, his gambles were his leaps or tricks, his physical humour. This was evidently a great entertainer, quick-witted, agile, funny, but also great for songs and flashes of merriment. The images of someone clever but light-hearted won't to set the table on a roar. There hasn't been much laughter in Elsinore since Hamlet's father died, perhaps not since Yorick passed away. There's a contrast between the sycophantic boozing and shouting that we heard from the battlements in Act One and the rather more joyful, light-hearted revels that Hamlet here remembers. They're all gone. Everything that Yorick brought to the party is gone. Not a single joke. Not one now to mock your own grinning, he says. Hamlet brings us right back to the skull in his hands, set, like all skulls, in a permanent deathly grin. It feels like he's wishing for one more joke, even a silly one that might mock the skull itself for grinning. And with that, Hamlet tries a joke himself. Quite chap-fallen. Earlier in this scene, we already had the word chapless to describe one of the earlier skulls, chapless because it was missing the lower jaw. Without being too grisly, there's a chance of a physical bit between Hamlet and Yorick's skull, If the jaw falls open, it is chap-fallen. As well as the literal sense, the word can also mean something like crestfallen or melancholy. Hamlet is addressing the skull as if it might cheer up and make some jokes for him, which of course it cannot. Next, Hamlet returns to his very specific distaste for women's makeup and the futility of cosmetics. Now get you to my lady's chamber and tell her, let her paint an inch thick, To this favour she must come. Make her laugh at that. While he was shouting at Olivia to get herself to a nunnery, he got in a few digs about how false women are painting a second face on top of the one God gave them. He's still in this groove, it seems, now mocking the idea and suggesting that even if they painted their makeup an inch thick, they'd still be reduced to skulls just like Yorick eventually. Who my lady is doesn't really matter. It could be Ophelia, in a neat piece of ironic foreshadowing, given that her funeral is on the way to the graveyard. And it could be Gertrude, since we already had a scene of Hamlet himself in her chamber, making her confront reality. Why not imagine a skull on her dressing table, making her laugh as she ponders her own eventual death, 
while she applies her makeup. If you'd like a very in-depth, fascinating discussion of cosmetics and makeup in this play and many others, there's a brilliant book for you. It's by Dr. Farah Kareem Cooper and it's called Cosmetics in Shakespearean and Renaissance Drama. Before I get too carried away talking about that, and indeed before Hamlet gets too tied up thinking about it all as he ponders this skull, he turns back to Horatio with a question. Prithee, Horatio, tell me one thing. There's no particular explanation needed here. He asks Horatio to answer a question he has. Horatio counters with a question of his own. What's that, my lord? Even as Hamlet's close friend, I don't imagine for a moment that Horatio could guess what Hamlet asks next. Dost thou think Alexander looked to this fashion of the earth? Hamlet is asking Horatio if he thinks Alexander the Great was likewise reduced to a skull in the earth. Horatio has a simple answer. E'en so. Such, of course, is the fate of all of us when we are buried. Hamlet then shows a little more erudition as he asks his follow-up question. And smelt so? Pah! This little exclamation, pah, suggests that poor Yorick's skull isn't the most pleasant thing to smell so close to one's face. This comparison with Alexander the Great is not accidental. According to Plutarch's Life of Alexander, and I quote, a very pleasant odour exhaled from his skin, and there was a fragrance about his mouth and all his flesh, so that his garments were filled with it. This is a weird nugget of information about the historical figure. It's the kind of thing you might remember from your education if ever you had to read Plutarch, that he had such a pleasant scent, and quite a fitting analogy for Hamlet to draw here. With that, according to the stage directions, Hamlet puts down the skull. And with that, we will conclude for now and resume the conversation in the next episode. For more information on Alexander the Great and a link to that book about cosmetics and makeup, you can check out the show notes for this episode on the website, thehamletpodcast.com. I'm very grateful, as always, for your company, and I'll speak to you next time.